on a clock of the history of the world that runs only 24 hours, you'd find that the entire human presence on the history of the planet uh, is less than one second. So, you know, the weed will win in the end, but the question is whether the conditions of life will be such that we would want to bequeath them to our descendants. And that is the moral and ethical challenge of our day. Hey there, and welcome back to Simbi Foundation's podcast, Impact in the 21st Century, the show that shares stories of positive impact in a world that right now can leave us all feeling a little helpless. Each episode, I speak with incredibly inspiring guests about the positive impact they're making, learn how they discovered their passion, and uncover what they've done to turn vision into action. I also aim to tease out what we can all do to lead more impactful lives, so be sure to stick around. I'm Aaron Friedland, your host of Impact in the 21st Century and founder of Simbi Foundation, a nonprofit organization that collaborates with the UN to build digital, solar-powered classrooms called Brightboxes to support the next 3.5 million learners in refugee settlements. If you're returning for another episode, thank you for being part of this community and for taking the time out of your day to listen to our podcast. You inspire us to keep sharing these impactful stories. And if this is your first time listening, welcome. We're so happy to have you here. And if you enjoyed the episode, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on the awesome guest list we have lined up for you. And a huge thank you to RBC for sponsoring this episode. And this episode, I'm excited to be joined by Wade Davis. His newest book is Magdalena, River of Dreams. He's author of 22 other exceptional books, a National Geographic explorer, professor, and a good chance you've watched the films based on his work or on him, including The Serpent and the Rainbow and Light at the Edge of the World. And Wade, it is such a pleasure to connect with you. And thank you for taking the time to join me today. Oh, my pleasure. And great to see you. So, you know, I'm fortunate to have you as my doctoral supervisor, and I get to spend a little bit of time with you. And so I have the luxury of knowing quite a bit about you that others may not. But I just want to take a moment to share a few of your accomplishments to shed some light on where this conversation is going. So your most recent book and masterpiece, Magdalena, which I'm excited to tuck into, you're a professor of anthropology, a National Geographic explorer in residence. You're described as a rare combination of scientist, scholar, poet, and passionate defender of all of life's diversity. Your work's taken you to some of the most unique biomes, including East Africa, Borneo, Nepal, Peru, Polynesia, Tibet, Mali, Benin, Togo, New Guinea, Australia, Mongolia, Colombia, and Haiti, to name a few. You're an ethnographer, a writer, photographer, filmmaker, and you have degrees in bioanthropology, um, and a PhD in ethnobotany, all from Harvard. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand 6,000 botanical collections discovered in the Amazon, author of 320 scientific and popular articles, 23 books. Anything I'm missing here? No, no, they accepted the, the, the honor is to, for me to have you as a student, Aaron. You're a, you're, a, you're a jewel. Well, I truly appreciate that. Thanks, Wade. So I just want to share a quick story with you. The reason that I know you and the reason that I know about you is because we're, about 15 years ago, my mom attended one of your Massey Hall lectures. And she gets home from the lecture and she says, Aaron, you need to search this incredible explorer and author. His name's Wade Davis. I was at his lecture. I needed to pee desperately for the last 45 minutes. And I was so glued to every single word he was saying that I couldn't get up and leave my seat to pee. And so she, when she tells her friends about you, you were the guy who kept her glued to her seat when she desperately needed to pee. I remember that woman in row 12. There she <laughs> was. <laughs> and, and, you know, so shortly after that event, I start reading your work. I become just 
infatuated with all things Wade Davis. And then when it came time to do the PhD, I, I remember call, I called your office. And, you know, the beauty of technology these days, I call your office. I was teaching economics at the time. And um, after I gave my last lecture, I give you a call. You answered the phone. Um, after, after the anthropology department connect me to your line, and we just had the most beautiful hour chat. And, you know, three years later, I'm, I have you as a, as a mentor and a, and a supervisor. And, and one thing that I want to talk about with this, and I think you showcase this more beautifully than any other researcher, professor, explorer that I've come across, is the, your happiness and willingness to just go out there. Um, you know, I think about the serpent and the rainbow when, when you just decided to travel to South America, to travel to the Amazon and to start exploring. And I'd love to hear from your perspective. There are so many people today in the 21st century who have such imposter syndrome and who are so scared of starting something new or trying a new idea. And you just grab life by the horns and inspire well, others. You know, to I think, I, you, know, you know, the famous quote from Teddy Roosevelt, where he talks about, you know, he'd rather be in the arena uh, bloodied and darkened and, and muddied and, and, and failing than to be in the stands simply observing um, and critiquing uh, the failure of someone in the arena. And it's a wonderful story. And I, you know, I, um, I, I think I've gotten where I am by never looking over my shoulder. And unfortunately for many people, that's the only direction they know. Um, you know, every single thing I've ever done has come with a caveat, whether it's a new book or a new adventure or a new project, uh, where somebody says, well, this is quite a radical departure for Wade Davis. And no one seems to get the pattern that, that um, you know, everything is new. I mean, I think, I think that's a really important lesson for young people, um, is to remember that, that at the end of the day, not only do you have to kind of cultivate your own inner compass so that you own the decisions in life. You know, we have this horrible idea that life is linear, that you go from A to B to C to D, um, and you'll never get to the rest of the alphabet if you skip a couple of the letters. And we all know that life is in fact made of these serendipitous moments when you have to make a choice, a fork in the road, as Joseph Campbell said, follow your bliss, as he, he wrote. Um, but the, the critical thing about that is not that you will always be right in your decision, but if you own those decisions, there will be no reason for bitterness in old age. Old age, you know, um, comes to all of us. And those who uh, manage to maintain their, their, their sense of sort of equilibrium and, and happiness and joy uh, and creativity, you know, are those who can look back on a life in which they have been the architect of that life. And that's the greatest creative challenge in a life. And bitterness invariably comes to those who look back on a, on a life of decisions imposed upon them from peers or from the society or from um, ghosts of the past or, or, or whatever. And this is why I say to young people, the most important thing is to, is to recognize that you know uh, pessimism is an indulgence, despair is an insult to the imagination, orthodoxy is the enemy of invention. You have to do what needs to be done and only then ask whether it was possible or permissible um, and above all, be patient and give your destiny time to find you. I mean, every when I look back on a life, and I bet I bet if you someone as dynamic as you, Aaron, would be, if not, maybe you're a little too young to really reflect in this way. But every single thing I've ever done, there's been people saying you can't do that. You know, um, going right back to 
choices of college. You know, what's wrong with UBC? Why do you have to go to Harvard? You know, oh, you're supposed to be studying law at Harvard. What's this anthropology thing? Wait a minute, you're supposed to be an anthropologist. What's this going off to the Amazon to study botany? You've never studied botany. Wait a minute, you've just spent four years in the Amazon collecting 6,000 specimens, um, which is actually 24,000 when you think of the actual individual specimens. Um, and uh, now you're going to do what? Go to voodoo? You don't know anything about voodoo. Wait a minute, you've just written the two most popular books on voodoo in the history of Haiti, and now you had a movie made about your life, and you could be, and you're going, what? You're going to Borneo to work as an activist on behalf of the pen? Wait a minute, you've just spent th two years, written two books, and have done everything you can to save the forests of, of Southeast Asia and the homeland of the last great nomadic people of that forest. And you're going, what? You're going to write a biography of someone we've never heard of? Wait a minute, you've just written this book about Richard Evans Schultes, the greatest Amazonian explorer. And, you know, and it goes on and on and on, right? The point is that I, I think in whatever field one is in, you know, people don't like change. I mean, if you're a young man and you have long hair and you cut it off, you're going to offend your friends who are invested in you having long hair. So the critical thing in life is is to is to not look over your shoulder and simply move 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 ahead. And I think it's also very important how you move ahead. Um, you know, one of the one of the greatest lessons uh, I've I've ever gotten was from my father. And as you know, Aaron, my father wasn't a religious man, but he had an incredible sense of decency, honor, morality, and ethics. And um, he absolutely believed in good and evil. And he used to say to me as a little boy, there's only good and evil in the world. Take your side and get on with it. And what he was really saying was very wise. You know, we have this idea in the West, particularly in, in the Christian tradition, of you know, good and evil, light and darkness, the fallen archangel who becomes a devil and the Christ child, the son of God. And, and we, we see them in mortal combat and always with the hope that eventually just one day, um, if, if we all do the right things, that good will triumph over evil and we'll all somehow ascend to whatever rapture it is, it, 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 whatever it is. Yeah? And, and, that, and, and that's, a, that's kind of an illusion. I mean, because that's not how the world works. And ironically, in the Middle Ages, if you ask the obvious question, if this is true, and at the same time, if God is all powerful, as you tell me, why on earth does God even tolerate the existence of evil in the universe? Now, if you ask that question in France in the year 1400, you were likely to be burned at the stake because it was the ultimate heresy, but it was also the ultimate question that challenged the entire foundation of the medieval, medieval uh, church. But in the East, in the Vedic traditions, people, you know, scholars and sages invited that kind of question. And when Lord Krishna was famously asked that same question, uh, you know, if God's all powerful, why does he allow evil to exist in the universe? Lord Krishna said to the acolyte or the disciple um, to thicken the plot. In other words, in the Buddhist tradition in particular, there's, there's not a sense of good and evil. There's and uh, and the, the the idea of the path of life is not is a path of the pilgrim and the path of the pilgrim is not to reach a destination but a state of mind, and so the the reason this is so important is that if you really think that good is going to triumph over evil, and then in life you face disappointments, you know the cruelty of the human heart, um, you know an environmental battle that goes wrong and they tear apart that mountain or tear down that forest, or you, you face disappointment. It's so um, easy to become embittered 
um, if you actually expected victory. But if you go through life never expecting victory and realizing that the goal is not to attain anything, but a state of being in, in the case of making that decision my father asked me to make, are you on the side of good or are you on the side of evil? And that, that, that is not a complicated question. You know, uh, we know what good is and we know what evil is and we know what evil is when we see it. Um, and we know how to find ourselves to the path of righteousness without being sanctimonious. There's no question about it. But if you recognize that it is a path, it is not going to stop. Then you get to my age, 67, and you find yourself with exactly the same vitality, exactly the same commitment to social justice, the same energy and curiosity to move on to the next thing in life um, as you had when you were 20. And I think that is ultimately um, a really important key to life. The other thing, just in jumping off of what you began this conversation, you know, you, you referred when you called me up. Well, you know, Aaron, I'm, you know, I, I um, answer every phone call. I answer every email from a young person. Because when a young person reaches out to someone they admire, um, they're not really, you know, they, I get emails all the time that are essentially on paper saying, how do I become an anthropologist? How do I become an explorer? How do I become a writer? In some variant of essentially, how can I become you? And the answer is they can't become me, they can only become themselves. But when they, what they're really asking in those emails, um, and I get hundreds from even you know, school children, they're really asking, am I somebody? If I, if I think that there's this person up there that I admire that, you know, and I want to reach out to that person, you know, am I someone? Will they answer me? And that's why, you know, not answering those emails is not a neutral thing. It's a slap in the face of a young person. It, it's a crushing of their dreams. And it, when I was young, um, I, I can remember a few, I can't even remember the circumstances, how these things came about, but a few seminal moments when I found myself in the presence of my heroes, the poet Gary Snyder, the environmentalist David Brower, um, I remember a friend of mine uh, in Washington, D.C. told me, uh, Aaron, that she thought I should really meet the secretary of the Smithsonian. And I misheard her, and I thought she had in mind some secretary who worked at the Smithsonian. And I turned up at the castle on the mall in Washington, D.C. in the summer heat of um, the East Coast, dripping with sweat in a T-shirt and jeans and sandals, and walked into the Smithsonian, and I didn't realize that the person she had in mind was the secretary of the Smithsonian, Dylan Ripley, who ran the entire Smithsonian Institution. And I was summoned into his office, the appointment had been set up, and then I was just maybe 18 years old. And then with me in tow, uh, the legendary Dylan Ripley walked me through the entire Smithsonian Institution, through the vast dining hall where some of the greatest scholars and scientists in the world were having their lunch, and took me up to the highest level where he alone sat to have his lunch. And I was floating as if I was on clouds. And all we talked about was birds in Nepal. That happened to be his passion, but it didn't matter what we talked about. He made me feel I was somebody, and I've never forgotten that. So that's why I jumped on the phone with you for an hour before I even knew what an extraordinary character you indeed are. Wait, <laughs> thank you. I think there's a lot of people who, they want to do something, they want to move, they may want to start their next study, they may want to 
launch their next idea. And they just, they're stuck and they're not able to start moving. It seems like everything that you've done, I mean, you've been so beautifully qualified to do, but you've really jumped. Oh, no, no, I wasn't. No one's qualified to do anything. You have to learn. I mean, this is a big, we have this idea. How many people grow up thinking John and Sally are creative, but I'm not a creative person. We have this, again, this myth that creativity is some kind of objective state. Creativity is not um, the motivation of action. It's a consequence of action. You can't be creative if you don't just do. You can't be a photographer if you don't take pictures. You can't be a potter if you don't spin clay. Um, you know, Jim Whitaker, the, the great um, climber, the first American to summit Everest, uh, um, has a wonderful saying. He says, if you're not living on the edge when you're young, you're taking up too much space. And, uh, you know, one of the things I learned in life was to be, be an opportunist, not in the sense of being a schemer, but putting yourself in the way of opportunities where there is no choice but success. And you suddenly then find yourself capable of doing things that a few months before would have been beyond your imaginings. And, and there's an element in this of, again, my, my old brother, Terence McKenna, had a great little rap where he said, you know, the great lesson of all the sages of the world is you jump off the cliff and you don't land on rocks. You land on a feather bed. The world doesn't exist to beat you down. It exists to lift you up. And, you know, everything I've ever done is, by, is like that. And, and um, you know, for, for example, you know, once I was sitting in Haida Gwaii, uh, having worked the summer as a park ranger, having no idea what to do with my life. So I figured I was a critic of industrial logging. I better know something about it. So I simply lied about my credentials and hired on as a forestry engineer and spent a year in the, in the, in the roughest logging camp on the west coast of um, probably British Columbia. And that, that, was pro, you know, that, that was an experience that was as valid to me as the, as the three degrees that I earned from Harvard. You know, one of the things I, I learned, again, I think from my father, is that there's a difference between wisdom and knowledge, and that, that um, there's, there's both knowledge and wisdom to be earned in, from anybody. You know, um, you know, a taxi driver in New York can have as much to tell you as, as, a, as, a, as certainly as a scholar at a university. I remember once I was in a cab in, in Washington, D.C., and there's an African-American driver, and I politely said, sir, you look a little bit old and to be driving cab in a tough city. And he leans back to me and he says, son, how old do you think I am? I will, sir, I don't mean to be rude, but, you know, you could be in your, you know, your 75, late 70s or something. He turns around to me and he says, sons, I'm 97 years old. And I looked at him, I said, my gosh, sir, you look so great. What's the secret to your success? And he leaned back and he said, son, I don't worry about a fucking thing. And in other words, you know, there was like more wisdom than a lot of my professors at Harvard had had. And that year in the logging camp, you know, gave me the knowledge that when we had the battles in the woods in British Columbia in the 1980s, um, you know, I knew what I was talking about as an environmentalist. In fact, I was once ambushed, as was he, on a morning talk show TV thing in Vancouver with Jack Monroe, who was head of the IWA, the, the union of all the woodworkers in British Columbia. And he was furious that he'd been side uh, kind of swiped by this young green environmentalist set up by the producer of the show. He was dripping sweat. He was a big bear of a man. 
And just before we went to air, I leaned over to him and I said, excuse me, Mr. Monroe, I'd just like to thank you because your union put me through university. And he couldn't believe it. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, your, your union put me through university. Where'd you log? Dean and Bay. What was the local? Named the local. What was the TFL? Named the TFL. And then we launched into this discussion of the of the condition of the timber industry at that time in BC, which was dreadful. And he knew it was dreadful. And I was saying things that he would have liked to have been able to see. And before that interview was over, on TV, Mr. Monroe had his arm around my shoulder and was saying, you know, I don't get, I don't speak as good as this young man because I didn't get to go to college. Well, I'll tell you, this is the kind of young man my union makes for the problems of British Columbia. Well, that was a great example of, of, um, of, of the adage that there are never any enemies in the world, there are only solutions, right? And, um, uh, you know, I think, I think for young people, it's, it's really important uh, to be patient, you know, and, and not to take on burdens that you, 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 you can't yourself um, uh, affect in any kind of meaningful way, it, it, that can almost become an indulgence and a kind of indulgence that can can actually then rationalize your own inertia and passivity. You know, if, if the pro, if you if you describe the problem as being insurmountable, therefore, what can you do? And therefore, that becomes, again, an excuse for inaction. And the whole purpose of life is to is to realize that you aren't going to change the world. In fact, as one of my favorite writers, Peter Matthewson said, uh, anyone who thinks they can change the world is both wrong and dangerous. And he had in mind, of course, people like Mao and Hitler and Lenin and and, and Stalin. Uh, but but there was some truth to that, you know. You know. Um, uh, but what you can do is put your shoulder to the wheel of of righteousness, and and that's kind of an epic quest that goes back into mythic times, right? Absolutely. You know, your your story in the cabwid reminds me. I remember taking, uh, it was an econ development course at McGill back in the day. And the first paper we read is um, Marshall Salen's Stone Age Economics, uh, the original affluent society. And the, the, this first chapter is talking about how Salens goes into the Kalahari Desert, spends time uh, with, with the local inhabitants in the Kal of the Kalahari, and ends up essentially studying and comparing them to British doctors. He compares the amount of sex they have per week, the amount of time they spend with the, their family, um, the amount of their, their heart rate, their blood pressure. And he ends up concluding that the average uh, villager in the Kalahari has a healthier, happier life than the average British doctor in the, in the 1950s. And I, I just, that was such a beautiful paradigm shift to realize well, how yeah, wrong I mean well, this is, I mean, this is really the essence of my work as, as an anthropologist, you know, is that, you know, all societies are, are myopic, faithful to their, their own interpretations of reality. And, you know, the, 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 the word barbarian comes from the Greek word barbarous, one who babbles. If you didn't speak Greek, you didn't exist. When Herodotus came back from his journeys, Plato wanted him banned from Athens for the audacity of saying, suggesting that something interesting might be going on over in that place called Persia. You know, but most native names translate, you know, indigenous names for societies translate the people, the implication being the blokes over the hill are savages beyond the pale. Well, this kind of cultural myopia is obviously something we can no longer uh, tolerate in a multicultural world, but it, 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 it leads us back to the realization of Franz Boas that, you know, every culture is just a product of its own history. No culture exists 
in the absolute sense is just a model of reality and the other peoples of the world aren't failed attempts at being you or failed attempts being modern every culture by definition is a unique answer to a fundamental question what does it mean to be human and alive and when the peoples of the world answer that question they do so in the seven thousand voices of humanity and those voices collectively become our human repertoire for dealing with all of the challenges that will confront us. I mean, the central lesson of anthropology is that every culture has something to say, each deserves to be heard, just as none has a monopoly on the route to the divine. And this is actually very helpful for us because, you know, remember that we too are a product of our history. Uh, you know, we we really are the children of a, of, of a, a 300 year tradition in which we've eaten the ancient sunlight of the world. You know, the the, the, the way we think about the world is not the only way, not just that, it comes from a particular place. You know, in the, the, the Renaissance, as we try to liberate ourselves from the tyranny of absolute faith, and certainly into the Enlightenment with Descartes, we threw out all notions of myth, magic, mysticism, and above all, metaphor. And when Descartes said that all that existed is mind and material, in a single gesture, he deanimated the world. Now that that gave us a scientific method, which is not to be trivialized. I mean, allopathic medicine is probably the greatest intellectual achievement in the history of humanity. We've seen that this year alone in, in the extraordinary development of vaccines. Um, you know, until this year, uh, the fastest vaccine ever developed was mumps in four months. So, what, you know, I'm not in any way trashing the genius that has come out of the enlightenment, on the contrary. But at the same time, when we when we adapted that perspective, we also deanimated the world to the extent, as Saul Bellow said, science made a house cleaning of belief. And the, the idea that the flight of a bird could have meaning, that the earth could be alive, was just dismissed as ridiculous. And all of the planet became just a stage set upon which only the human drama unfolded. And that had real consequences in terms of our interaction with the planet. And, and uh and, and the important thing is that m that way of thinking, which because it's ubiquitous, because it's powerful, because it's dominant, shouldn't imply that it's the norm, because it isn't. It's extraordinarily anomalous when viewed through the ethnographic lens. Almost all cultures in human history have based their relationships with the planet, not on an extractive sense of it, but on a reciprocal sense of it. It's some, some variant of the very simple idea that the earth owes its bounty to people, but people owe their fidelity to the earth. Humans aren't the problem, we are the solution, because it's only through the human consciousness that the earth can become manifest. Now, the reason that's so important is it plays out in very concrete terms. If I'm raised, as you were raised, Aaron, to believe that a mountain is a pile of rock ready to be mined, we'll have a different relationship to it, and our society will have a profoundly different ecological footprint then my godchildren in the mountains of Peru raised to believe that a mountain is an Apu deity that will direct their destiny. The First Nations of the coast of British Columbia, for example, the Kwakwakawak, believed that the forests were the abode of Hukuk and the crooked beak of heaven and the Hamasa spirits that would be embraced during the initiatory rites. Well, that gives them a different relationship than the way I was thought with the ideology of scientific forestry and sustained yield that said that those forests existed to be cut. And the consequences are profound, and and so and so the 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 
the the existence of these other ways of being is not to suggest that any of us go to a pre-industrial past or that any people in the world be kept from the genius of modernity. It's simply to suggest humbly um, that our way is not the only way. Uh, and therefore that allows us to put the lie to those of us in our own society who say that we cannot change when we all know we must change the fundamental way we inhabit the planet. So the issue isn't the traditional versus modern. It's about what kind of world are we all going to move forward to um, in, in, in order to sustain human life on Earth. Look, you know, for those of, for those, um, you know, the, one of the lessons of COVID, which was um, in, in a way the one sort of revelation in a positive sense, is we saw dramatically the fecundity of the Earth. You know, I mean, the minute that industrial activities shut down, suddenly we saw the skies uh, clearing over the Himalaya above Delhi. We saw the the canals of Venice run clear, you know, rivers running through cities like Medellin, Colombia, suddenly looking like trout streams. We saw, you know, wild boar in the streets of Barcelona, Caiman blackening the beaches of Baja, um, you know, the rehabilitation of the city space by wild creatures. You know, we saw how resilient the earth is. And, and it's, um, it's, 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 it's a good thing to remember that if you, if you took the entire history of the hominid lineage, I don't just mean Homo sapiens or our immediate progenitor, Homo erectus, go all the way back to Homo afarensis at 2.3 million years ago, and you take that entire lineage and put it on a clock of the history of the world that runs only 24 hours, you'd find that the entire human presence on the history of the planet uh, is less than one second. So, you know, the weed will win in the end, but the question is whether the conditions of life will be such that we would want to bequeath them to our descendants. And that is the moral and ethical challenge of our day. Wade, you are too damn eloquent. It's, uh, it's difficult to speak to you. <laughs> it's the Irish gift for the gab, my friend, you know. You know. No, but I mean, again, you know, this gets, this is another thing, you know, when people say to me, Aaron, you know, uh, you know, they get very confused. Are you an anthropologist? Are you a photographer? Are you a filmmaker? Are you uh, a professor? Or, or, or you know, whatever. It, it, it's important for young people to realize that, you know, a vocation is not something you put on like a cloak. It, it's just a lens through which you examine the world and only for a time. Um, uh, I, one of the reasons I think young people get confused is I think there's this sort of smorgasbord out there kind of, you know, uh, pilot, fireman, doctor, lawyer, fisherman, or thief. And I've got to somehow pick a slot, a, a, a profession into which to slot my entire life. And it, it drives people uh, um, uh, crazy, you know, because no one wants that. And, 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 and it's highly unlikely that there will indeed be a slot that can satisfy anyone for an entire life. And in fact, the ironic irony of that kind of a falsehood is the fact that we know that statistically people change vocations six or seven times in over the course of their lives. So I think it's 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 more important to think of of what you're doing in terms of gen, generating revenue, if you will, as just something you're doing for a while, and 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 keep the focus on the learning that is on you know you you learn you know nothing is a waste of time unless you make it. No job is beneath you unless you see it that way. Uh, and everything adds to your to your repertoire, uh, as I was saying earlier. Um, uh, but you know, people are always, you know, um, you know, you know, you know, you know, going to college and saying, you know, 
what, 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 what kind of job am I going to get with this degree? Well, you know, that's not what college is about. And, um, and be careful with your, your desire. I mean, you know, the word job comes from the medieval French word gobert, meaning to devour. Uh, I've fortunately never had a job in my life until uh, I was rec recruited to UBC at the age of 59. And I don't think many young people will find a single slot in which to plug an entire existence. But what they should do and will do is work. And the word work has a more um, better ring to it. It comes from the Anglo-Saxon root meaning to create and inspire. So I always say to young people, never have a job, but work harder than anyone you know, and you know you will triumph in life. Well said. So we, you, there's, a, there's a lot to, to unpack here, and I've got quite a few follow-up questions for you. When, when you think about just the sheer volume of, of information that you actually crank out, and when you're thinking about not only the, the breadth of, it, of information, but also the depth at, at which you're able to go, and your ability to, whether it's spending time in Vodun ceremonies and being able to embed yourself in a society like that, or whether you're, you know, it could be any of your, it could be Tibet, wherever it is. It seems like you have, you're an expert learner. It seems like you are able mm -hmm. to learn just exceptionally well. Do you have advice for, for people, for students, for other folks looking to, to master learning in, in a similar fashion? I think, I think that's, especially given your calling, Aaron, and the incredible work you do with the Simbi Foundation, I think that's a really important question. I mean, one thing that I've learned um, uh, by, by circumstances, I became self-employed. You know, I, um, I, uh, I, I, I literally went through graduate school. I wrote, a, I, you know, um, I mean, I'll just give a little bit of history. You know, I was, I was, I was, I spent four years in South America. I really was trying to find in botany. I, you know, I'd started in anthropology. Um, yeah, I can go back further that, you know, how did I become an anthropologist? Everybody expects there's some great, great, you know, um, kind of thing behind that. On the contrary, the, 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 I, 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 I went to Harvard uh, because uh, I fought forest fires in the forests of British Columbia during an era of Vietnam and all these draft dodgers were there and we were these obedient Canadian lads and they would tell our bosses to piss off and it was irresistibly charismatic and one of them had the Life magazine with the Harvard student strike on the cover of 1969 and I thought that's got to be the school to go to to become cool like these Americans. I applied, I got in, my parents didn't have the money to accompany me to Boston, I turned up at Logan Airport with my big trunk and realized I didn't know where Harvard was. And I asked this African-American in a Harvard t-shirt and he didn't know either. So I took my trunk through the subway, got to Cambridge and realized my mom had made a mistake and the dorms weren't gonna be open for 10 days. It was a weekend, I had no money, no cash in my pocket. And so I dragged my trunk through Cambridge until I found a church and the pastor opened the door, welcomed me and I fell in love with America from that instant. But he was also a big war resistor and his basement was full of um, uh, American draft dodgers, again, fleeing to Canada. I got radicalized and spent my first year at Harvard making trouble. It's amazing. I didn't get thrown out of the country. And uh, then the deadline was the next morning to pick a major. And I, by chance, I walked through the halls of the Peabody Museum of Ethnology that afternoon and came out onto the street and saw a friend. And I said, well, Stuart, what are you going to major in tomorrow? And he said, anthropology. And then after two and a half years of studying um, native people in books, 
I wanted to go live in the forest somewhere. And so I was in a cafe in Harvard Square. There was a National Geographic map of the world. My roommate looked at it. He pointed to the Arctic. I had to go somewhere. I pointed to the Amazon. And having decided to go to the Amazon, there was one man to see, the legendary botanical explorer, Richard Evans Schultes. And I walked into his office and said, I've saved up money in a logging camp. I want to go to the Amazon and collect plants like you did. Instead of asking me for my credentials, this man for whom mountains had been named in South America, the man who sparked the psychedelic era with his discovery of the magic mushrooms in Mexico in 1938, said very simply, well, son, when do you want to go? And two weeks later, I was in South America, and I became an acolyte of this great man, this great explorer. And just to move in his shadow was to aspire to greatness. Um, and uh, But after four years uh, as a botanical explorer, I was looking for something new. And he summoned me to his office and asked me casually if I'd like to go to the Caribbean island nation of Haiti and infiltrate the secret societies and secure the formula of a drug used to make zombies. And actually, I said yes. And uh, th this touches upon a theme related to our conversation. All my life, I only had one word in my vocabulary for new experience, and that was yes. And uh, I go off to Haiti, and the research is funded by a very famous psychopharmacologist with a, a, a patron who was covering the bills such that if I needed $10,000 by Thursday, I just had to ring Manhattan by Monday night. And then suddenly the patron had a stroke and the intellectual um, back of the project died during routine heart surgery. And so I went from being flush with money to having none, walked off the street in London to a literary agent, walked out with a book contract, finished the research with the book contract, having first spent some of the advance taking a girlfriend to Paris. And then I actually had to write a book. I wrote two chapters that I thought was the best thing since the Bible, Simon and Schuster rejected it. I got malaria and hepatitis, didn't notice for three months, and was landed back on a farm in Virginia where I taught myself to write. And I wrote The Serpent of the Rainbow in seven months, and it came out and it sold almost half a million copies. Suddenly, I was a writer, and my PhD was made being made into a Hollywood movie. And then I decided after my PhD that I would, you know, kind of get back to the academic fold, and I applied for a postdoc at New York Botanical Garden, and I was too polite and Canadian uh, to ask them through this entire process what the salary of this position would be if I was lucky enough to get it. And I was lucky enough to get it. But then I did ask what the salary was. And my mate said, I think we can get you 19. And I said, 19 what? And they wanted me to live in New York City with a pregnant wife on $19,000 a year when I just made half a million dollars writing a book. And I said, Mickey, I love you, but you made a career choice for me. And suddenly I'm a writer, right? But then I've got to make it as a, you know, this is just the way life unfolds, right? Um, and uh, the, the, to me, the key component uh, was that I did have a very fine academic training, and I was able to use all those skill sets that I had uh, been encouraged to develop, not because my professor saw them as distractions to the core mission, but the same thing I say to you as a student, Aaron, they're compliments to it. Um, public speaking, popular writing, um, uh, filmmaking, photography, whatever, you know, you want to encourage your graduate student to come out with a bag of tricks, you know, a quiver of arrows of opportunity. And, and, um, uh, and by using those, th that quiver, I was able to build an independent career um, that never existed before. People often say to me, you know, you know, how do, how do I get to be who you are in some variant of that? 
And I say, if you really knew what it took, you'd go right to law school. You know, I mean, you know, it's not easy. I mean, one of the things that, um, two things that my, 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 that, that I would say about myself is no one works harder. And when you are self-employed, one of the key great things about being self-employed is you never mistake activity for results. So I waste no time. It doesn't mean I work all the time, although my work is my life. And so I'm always at work. Uh, it's not, I don't have, I have no sense whatsoever of a separation between workspace, family space, play space, you know, recreation. I mean, I think that's just a horrible idea that, you know, we, we work all of our lives to, so we can retire. But by that point, we don't even know who we are anymore. You know, I mean, I, I the idea that you would, um, you know, I can't personally conceive of, of a life where there's a separation between my work activity and other activities of my life. And, and uh, uh, the, other, the other key thing that, that I think really is important for young people, um, my sister always says that, you know, all these biographies that are done or whatever biographical films, no one captures how tough you are. And what she means by that is I don't mean physically tough or machismo or anything like that but that nobody, nobody in their uh, young years at 23 was more desperate to find their destiny, not for fame, not for money, but just to know where this, this fireball of energy was gonna be expressed, right? We, that's how a young person feels. It's like, you know, you've got this potency, you've got this energy, you've, you can do anything. You're, you're in your twenties, you, you know, you're invincible. It's just like an atomic bomb waiting to explode, but you don't know where to put it. And it can drive you crazy. And a lot of people get scared and they jump off into law school or they jump into medical school just because it gives them a label. And what my sister said is that no one had a greater and more intense desire to know their destiny than you. And yet somehow you held back and gave your destiny time to find you. And it took a decade. And it was only with the writing of my first book, The Serpent and the Rainbow, when I suddenly out of the blue discovered that I had the ability, a gift for storytelling. And, and, you know, then you suddenly feel this almost this upwelling of these deep Irish roots, because I am Irish, right? That, that it's like, that was what I was doing. But, you know, I'll tell you, and, I, and I'm not trying to say this um, to young people in particular, as if this was a smooth and, and, and a, a sort of a, a process of wisdom. On the contrary, nobody was more confused, more neurotic, more indecisive, more kind of frenzied uh, than I was at the age of uh, 23. In fact, at one point, I applied Aaron to both graduate school and botany at Harvard and law school at UBC as if they were the same thing. And uh, I got into both. And mercifully, uh, my sister at the time was articling at a posh law firm in Vancouver. And I went to pick her up one afternoon. And there was a kindly old woman behind the reception desk of that law firm. And she took one look at me and said, are you Karen's brother, Wade? And I said, yes, man, that's me. Uh, you just came back from the Amazon. Mm -hmm. And you eat all these weird plants. And I, well, yeah, I do. She, you follow me. And she took me by the hand. It was wonderful. Back through the dusty halls of the law library at this posh firm. And she had set up a, a, a ladder, um, I guess, that you normally use to access books on the upper shelf or something. But she had set it up so it went right up to this lithograph of a, 16, a 17th century British solicitor. And she said, you climb that ladder. 
So dutifully, I climbed the ladder and came face to face with this figure with a hooked nose, paunched belly, the wig, the whole works, right? And then she yelled up at me, now is that you? And I took one look and I said, no. I came down the ladder, went to the front desk, called UBC Law School and retracted my application. The point is that this, this, this process of life, of coming of age, of finding oneself, it, you don't expect it to be easy. Um, the hard, in a way, is what it makes makes it great. I'd like to chat for a little bit about your, your work with uh, cultures and systems at risk, um, your work with the UBC there, and some of the work that you're doing both in the Amazon as well as work um, on the language side. Well, I think I think a really important thing, Aaron, is, you know, I was very, very fortunate um, to have two mentors. Um, uh, one, Richard Evan Schultes, the botanical explorer, who wasn't really an environmentalist. He was sort of pre-environmentalism, if you will. But he was the, the, the first um, ethnobotanist to truly celebrate the, the remarkable knowledge of the indigenous people of the Northwest Amazon. And uh, virtually all of his academic papers began with a warning that this knowledge was being lost. And at the same time, my intellectual mentor was a great um, humanist and great ethnographer, David Mayberry Lewis, uh, who had worked with the Chavante in Brazil. And so I, I, I inherited from David in particular, founder of cultural survival, a tremendous sense of mission and uh, a desire to bring the stories of the plight of indigenous people to the attention of the world. Now, it's interesting, you know, flash forward uh, and, 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 and uh, to, to um, the language issue you mentioned, you know, it's fascinating. I, even though I had this orientation, even though I was trained, my first degree was in anthropology uh, under David's direction. Um, I, I wasn't aware of the language data until I came upon Michael Krause's 1992 paper uh, where it was just called the world's languages at risk. And I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe what it said. You know, it wrote that fully by academic consensus, half the language of the world weren't being taught to children. Well, that meant by definition that half of humanity's knowledge was at risk. Why, wh why wasn't anyone screaming about it? I thought, you know, and, uh, uh, and by the time I, I came upon that paper, I think it was 1995, 1996, and I began to write about it. And I remember calling up Ken Hale at MIT, who said that every time we lose a language, it's like a nuclear bomb falling on the Louvre, right? Uh, uh, and I couldn't, as I did my informal survey as a non-linguist, I couldn't find a single linguist who challenged Krauss's fundamental um, uh, um, um, suggestion that half the language of the world weren't being taught to children. And, 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 uh, and by 1998, I was really using the bully pulpit of the National Geographic. And that's really why I was brought into the geographic in, in um, the year 2000, as the geographic went into a new century. And as they launched an international television channel, um, I think they wanted to distinguish themselves from discovery by showing that they were an institution that didn't just report science, but generated science as it always had done. And so they selected these seven explorers and residents who would personify that mission. Jane Goodall for primatology, Bob Ballard who found the Titanic, Sylvia Earle, the great oceanographer. And I was selected as the social anthropologist and largely on this mission, ours were all conservation missions. And my mission was to draw attention 
to not just the plight of languages, because language loss was simply a, a, a concrete way of measuring the erosion of culture itself. And the, the, the really interesting question was why, why weren't the linguists screaming about this? And the answer was two words, Noam Chomsky. And Noam Chomsky, who was a, 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 a darling of the new left during the Vietnam protests, um, and that burnished his already remarkable credentials as the greatest linguist of his generation. And Chomsky's great breakthrough and his great intuition was to challenge the kind of behavioral sense of language acquisition. You know, people used to think that, you know, people began to speak languages because parents rewarded them with a cookie or a piece of coconut if they said mommy at the age of, um, you know, uh, one. And Chomsky quite properly noted that language acquisition was an incredibly complicated thing that occurred in all cultures and all languages at roughly the same uh, age. And he posited that there had to be a kind of a hard wiring in the human brain for language acquisition. And this became known as sort of deep structure or the universal grammar, if you will. And so his, his thought was that the only thing we're studying in linguistics, in a sense, was the parameters of that cognitive organ, not that it was a physical organ in the brain, but it was some kind of cognitive space where language acquisition could happen. And uh, Michael Krauss, when I finally spoke with him, used a bio biology, a biological analogy. He said, if you want to study life, you study DNA, and you don't really care if the DNA comes from a panda bear or a fruit fly. It's just DNA, right? That doesn't mean that conservation or is not important, but you can leave that to the conservation biologists. You know, it's a little bit like, you know, the, and, and similarly, um, what Chomsky was saying is, is that if you really want to study uh, language, you get to the deep structure. It really doesn't matter how that deep structure is expressed in what in biological terms would be phenotype, in other words, the actual language. And that got to the point where it was as if the languages, the expression of that imaginary or imagined cognitive structure were less important than the structure itself. They could come and go. What mattered was the structure. And that idea had a complete hammerlock on linguistics for two generations. It still does. Um, and and, and it, it, to the extent that it wasn't really said necessarily that it didn't matter that language loss happened, but it wasn't that important. You know, and um, and and if you challenge that, um, fundamental idea, you, you really couldn't um, be in, the, in, in academic linguistics. And to this day, if, for example, you gave me all the money in the world, Aaron, to document all the languages of the world, I couldn't do it because the, 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 there are not enough trained linguists, even though they're pumped out by the score every day, but none of them are trained in the hard work of, of documenting uh, dictionaries and, and uh, grammars of, of remote societies. And, and the, the people who've done the most of that are in fact, ironically, um, those who really want to, in some sense, undervalue or undercut societies, are the Summer Institute of Linguistics who have a central core mission to translate the New Testament into every language of the world. But because of that, they've actually gone out and compiled dictionaries and grammars and learned how to speak these tongues. Um, and so it's kind of a strange irony that the greatest repository of that data is in fact in Dallas, Texas at the headquarters of the Whitecliff Bible translators. And I'm not denigrating them. I'm just saying it, it indicates how, how linguistic 
uh, academic work has has done so little to confront this crisis. Now, one of the interesting things is that I came along with no baggage. I wasn't part of the linguistic community. I didn't pretend to be a linguist. I just noticed that it horrified me this statistic and as I, and, and when I went before audiences it's one thing to talk in the abstract of the value of culture it's quite another to say do you realize that every two weeks some elder carries into the grave the last syllables of an ancient tongue you know how would you feel to be enveloped in silence to have no means or ability to pass on the wisdom of your ancestry or to, to anticipate the promise of your descendants. Well, that is a fate of someone every two weeks because every two weeks a language dies. And well, what about this idea of all of us speaking of universal language? And I'd be able to say to the audience, what a great idea, but let's make that universal language of Niptatak. Let's make it Haida, let's make it Quechua. And you suddenly feel what it'd be like to be enveloped in silence. And, and so I found it as a way, a way that would just draw the air out of the lungs of an audience, right? And I began to sort of use that on a bully pulpit of the National Geographic. Um, and uh, and then what was interesting is, is that, you know, that there's no question I contributed to this kind of rethinking of the importance of just language loss, but it was already a dam waiting to be broken because there was already a whole new generation David uh, Crystal, um, David Harrison, I mean, a whole bunch of incredible young linguists who are the forefront of the field today, who are on the edge of sort of saying the emperor has no clothes. I mean, what if Chomsky is simply wrong? Um, or, or, or he may be right, but that doesn't mean that the way that we express the universal grammar is not important. And now, of course, beginning really in the first decade of the, of the new century, uh, there was suddenly a, a tsunami of of of, uh, of books, of films, of uh, research efforts for revitalization, and and this is, you know, I I I, I like to, you know, I, I think I can honestly claim some credit for being one of the sparks that that set that in motion. Um, thanks to the National Geographic and and the platform they gave me. Right, and so so wait, when you think about your work that you've done with with language preservation with cultural preservation and I, let me jump on that word you know we preserve jam not culture uh you know we, we it, 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 it's a dangerous word because the minute you say that the haida have to be preserved it denies them the right of change and yet all cultures in all places are danced with new possibilities for life you know um, I no more resemble the worldview of my grandfather than, than my friend Gujao should resemble the worldview of his grandfather in the case of the Haida. You know, the issue isn't about preserving anything. It's about how do we find ways that, um, that uh, uh, first of all, all peoples can, can make their own decisions about their own destiny. And how do, how do we find ways to make sure that all people can benefit from the best of the modern paradigm, be it medicine or science, uh, without that engagement having to demand the death of who they are as a people? And the reason for that um, is, is, is that, is that culture is not trivial. Uh, this is not an issue of human rights alone, and certainly not an issue of romantic nostalgia. It's about geopolitical stability. Culture is not trivial. Culture is not decorative. Culture is, in fact, the body of moral and ethical values that we wrap every individual in to keep at bay the barbaric heart that history tells us lies within all of us. It is culture that makes us 
capable of making sense out of sensation, finding order in the universe, uh, doing what Lincoln said, seeking the better angels of our of our nature. And if you look at what happens when culture, the constraints of culture are lost, uh, what is revealed is a barbaric heart of humanity. Um, and, and this is why the, 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 the celebration, the respect for culture is so essential, but it's not about preserving anything like frozen in time any more than we freeze ourselves in time. Appreciate the correction there. Yeah. Uh, so when we think about your work and how you have to date created just immense positive impact in the 21st century, and when you think about you know, what the next 20 years or so look like, recognizing the same, recognizing that you are still as passionate and you're still producing as much as you were probably in your 30s. Is there one area where you see immense room for, for your focus to be? Is there one area where, where you're excited to be able? You know, there's nothing. Now, what is life but a, but a story we lose the power of comprehending as we get old? I mean, there's nothing worse than than, than old people saying, oh boy, it used to be great. Oh my God, you missed the 60s, you missed Woodstock. Just look at that movie Woodstock and all you wanna do is have a bath. You know, I, um, uh, I, I, I'm so optimistic, you know, um, because of your generation. Uh, you know, don't forget when I grew up in a time when just getting someone to stop throwing garbage out of a car window was an environmental victory. I mean, I've lived through, no one spoke of the biosphere. Now that's the biodiversity is part of the vernacular of school children. The vision of the earth from space transformed our notion of our place in the universe. Uh, that, that vision that only came back on Christmas Eve, 1968. Think of that. You know, I was 14 years old when we first saw the earth from space. That will be spoken about 10,000 years from now as one of those crystal moments of transformation of the human awareness. Uh, I would argue that the lessons of genetics is equally important, that journey into the fiber of our beings, which finally, finally proves the validity of, of Boaz's intuition about cultural relativism. We know the genetic endowment is a continuum. We're all cut from the same genetic cloth. Race absolutely is a fiction. We're all descendants of the same common ancestors, including those who walked out of Africa 65,000 years ago and in, in 40,000 years, 2,500 human generations settled the entire habitable world. But here, but but the 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 extraordinary thing is that in you know in my lifetime, women have gone from the kitchen to the boardroom, people of color from the woodshed to the White House. In 1967, interracial inter marriage was banned in much of the United States. Uh, um, you know, gay people have gone from the closet to the altar. It's simply incredible the the changes that have happened and i recently wrote a piece in the scientific american trying to credit anthropology for its role in this and the, the way i did that it was referring to a fantastic book by charles king where he asks us a very simple question you know consider the world of your great great grandparents in the edwardian era what they thought about the role of women what they thought about race what they thought about the world around them the environment um, you know, there's not one of their certainties um, that you would not find to be not just wrong, but morally reprehensible. And, and so what was it that allowed the culture to go from zero to 60 in a couple generations? You know, what, if you, for example, 
you know, we, if you, for example, believe that it's normal that an Asian friend would have an Irish boyfriend or that a Jewish girl would find um, solace in the Buddhist Dharma or that two mothers, uh, two women or two men could form a family and have good, healthy, loving family uh, as long as there was love in the house, all those things, if you believe all of that, you're a child of anthropology. Because, you know, social movements um, and political movements are based on, on, on politics and organizing, but they, they fundamentally are based on a set of ideas that, that make those movements possible. And we, our, our way of thinking, we live in the social a landscape of the dreams of the small cadre of contrarians who gathered around Franz Boas, many of them women, Zora Neale Hurston, African-American, um, Ruth Benedict, uh, Margaret Mead. They lived in a world of profound anti-Semitism where Franz Boas, a German Jew, could not get a position at the Smithsonian, where Zora Neale Hurston, as an African-American, would be hounded by the FBI. In fact, all of these uh, people uh, were, were, although they now are seen as the gods of the discipline in North American anthropology, um, were, were hounded by the FBI, denied promotion, um, um, ridiculed for the, for the um, uh, innovators that they in fact were, um, dismissed as the subversives that they in fact were. But they said something extraordinary. They said that the world in which you were born is just a model of reality, that we create our, our social um, uh, worlds, uh, that race is an utter fiction, that gender is fluid. You know, all of this stuff, uh, they were the ones who sowed the seeds of our own dreams. We are living through the social landscape of their dreams, in fact. And, and, and this is what anthropology has contributed to the world. And it continues to contribute to the world. And that's why, you know, in an era in which the Chinese are putting millions of people into prison camps in the Northwest, when the forests of the Penan are being torn asunder, uh, where, where the very homeland of the Inuit is melting from beneath them, anthropology needs to maintain the activism of its foundation. Ruth Benedict said, the great acolyte of Franz Boas, the entire purpose of anthropology is to make the world safe for human differences. And that's why the voice of anthropology has never been more important than it is today. So wait, in, in this article uh, that you're referring to, Why Anthropology Matters, one of, the, one of the items that you discuss is how Franz Boas is as influential as Einstein and Darwin. And ultimately, it's, it's, it's what we've just explained now that is his core philosophy, eh? This is this was well. He's, he made. I mean, you know. I mean, surely what I, you know. Often, you know, you, you know. Naturally, women are always excluded from this list because, other, <clears throat> for any number of reasons, you know, there are opportunities at the time, and also just the way you know the history has been written. But the bottom line is, if you were to name the the sort of the pillars of modernity as we know it, it'd be hard to um, avoid the names Einstein, Freud, uh, Darwin. And I would add to that Franz Boas, who's, you know, because, because in terms of creating the social landscape of modernity, um, he's the one who did it, uh, you know, with these extraordinary people around him. I mean, they, they weren't perfect individuals, um, but they were harassed and they stood their ground and they gave us the, the you know, and it's interesting that that Boas is, you know, the way he came to think of this is so fascinating, Aaron. You know, he was a physicist. 
uh, doing his PhD uh, a generation before Einstein in Germany. And he noticed in his experiments that, that, that they were kind of affected by ideas of perception. And in the marvelously eclectic way of scholarship in the 19th century, insights in one field could slip into another. And he began to think of this, um, you know, how, how, how human beings define what it is to be known. You know, we, we define what it is to know and then define as common sense, that which we've already kind of agreed to are fundamental truths, right? And none of this, by the way, uh, suggested an extreme relativism as if every uh, human um, uh, behavior had to be accepted simply because it existed. Critically, Boaz never called for the elimination of judgment. He called for the suspension of judgment so that the very ethical and moral judgments we were obliged to make as human beings could be informed ones. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, that that whole... Um, realizing that, you know, there were this thing called culture, and he was the first to kind of use that word as an organizing principle, that it wasn't carved in stone. And, and critically, critically, he challenged the old idea of the British anthropologists who believed, inspired by Darwin, that cultures evolved and that we went literally from the savage to the barbarian to the civilized to the strand of London, where there was this sort of imaginary evolutionary ladder to success upon which every, every rung a culture hung with the judge with the measure of success, of course, being technological wizardry, which not inconveniently was the agreed great achievement of the West. And Boaz came along and said that is not only stupid, it's morally um, unacceptable. And, he, and, and what he said is that if you that, that, that every culture creates its own set of adaptive imperatives and, and its own, not adaptive imperatives, but its own response to the common adaptive imperatives that we all confront. We all have to birth our children, raise and educate our children, uh, look after coupling in some kind of consistent way, uh, which we call marriage, but different kinds of marriages can exist, but they have to be consistent within any one society. How do we deal with the agony of old age, the inexorable separation that death implies and the mystery that lies beyond death. I mean, all societies deal with that, but they deal with it in, 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 in their own ways. And, uh, uh, and that, that, you know, that we may emphasize technology as a measure of success, but for other societies, the priority is unraveling the complex threads of memory inherent in a myth. The point is that Boas had that intuition and, what he, and, and the way he got that intuition um, was in Canada. This is what made it so exciting to, for a Canadian because it was really while he was with the Inuit on Baffin Island. And I don't know if you've been in the high Arctic in the middle, middle of a blizzard, but I, re, I remember once being out polar bear hunting with a group of Inuit when the temperature dropped to minus 65 Celsius. And that was before the wind came up. And that's right at that moment, the skidoo we had broke down. And there we were out in that kind of weather. Uh, and I can promise you with all my Harvard degrees, I would have died within about 15 minutes. Uh, my life and their lives were saved by the genius of the Inuit people. And Boaz had a similar experience. And he realized that in that, in that space, he was a pathetic, hopeless, um, you know, amoeba-like, uh, you know, parasite on the, on the, on, you know, I mean, I'm just being exaggerated. He, he realized he had no skills to deal with that, but their skills were incredible. And then of course, he goes out to the Pacific Northwest, the salmon forests of, 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 um, of the Kwakwakawak and, and realizes that here's a case of high civilization achieved without 
the cult of the seed without agriculture. And he begins to realize that there are other possibilities. And even he goes as far as realizing that agriculture, which was always sort of placed on that ladder of success as if it was a sort of stellar achievement of humanity. In fact, and again, back to your very initial question from Mars, from Salins, that agriculture brought uh, all kinds of things, but not all of them good. I mean, it was agriculture, which of course, which gave us a rich carbohydrate diet, but not as diverse a diet. It required more labor, made us susceptible to periods of drought uh, uh, and thus famine. It brought all the animals into close proximity uh, of the human home and every damn disease we have from polio to, to AIDS to smallpox, uh, including now COVID, um, vectored into the human population through proximity with animals. Um, and, and so he began to just rethink the way that human beings had um, uh, structured this and imposed this, this Eurocentric notion of success on the world. And, and, and we live now in that, the landscape of, of the possibilities brought into being by his thinking and, and those around him. And that's why I'm, I'm such a kind of a Boazian uh, acolyte. I want to continue on the school of thought for a moment, the, the school of thought being humans making decisions, not necessarily considering the unintended consequences or the negative externalities. Um, we spoke about Chomsky earlier, and it seems to me that a, another very similar comparison is, is actually ha what happened with cocaine and, and how humanity has demonized this plant that has myriad benefits yet lack of nutritional studies have essentially demonized it I, and I mean, demonized the, ancient wisdom as well. Well, you know, the, 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 the you know, Barbara Tuckman, the great historian, uh, wrote a book called The March of Folly, and she defined folly as when a nation, though, in full possession of the facts, nevertheless persists in policies that are to its own detriment. I mean, classic examples would be the British lo losing the American colonies during the... Uh, the American Revolutionary War, or the the popes of Rome uh, allowing the Reformation to bubble and grow and explode over Europe, or um, uh, Vietnam as a uh, as a pointless military engagement for the Americans. But but the war on drugs will be remembered as the the great folly of our time. Um, Fifty billion dollars a year being spent. Um, uh, Today, after 50 years of a war on drugs, more people in more places using worse drugs in worse ways than ever before. The war on drugs never began as an effort to stop people harming themselves from the use of drugs. It began as a, as we know from Ehrlichman's memoirs, as an explicit attempt of Nixon to, um, to demonize both African-Americans and hippies and war resistors to consolidate his hold on what he was calling the silent majority and yet it has caused so much harm. Um, and the truth of the matter is that, that human societies um, throughout history, as the ethnographic record makes clear, have had a desire to periodically uh, invoke some technique of ecstasy uh, to reach an altered state of consciousness. Now, these techniques can involve ordeal, they can involve meditation, prayer, chanting, dancing, any number of mechanisms, but certainly one of them through history has been the ingestion of uh, various plants which have um, uh, opened worlds of wonder, not just the so-called entheogens revealing the God within and the so-called hallucinogens, but also, you know, um, 
you know, uh, stimulants of one sort or another. And in the West, we define our drugs not by uh, pharmacology, but by legal status. So we have this kind of bizarre situation where alcohol is legal, even though it has caused so much harm. Uh, tobacco, which by any definition is the most addictive substance um, known on earth, far more addictive than heroin, um, derived from a group of family, a family of plants, the Solanaceae, that is the home of all the herbs of European witchcraft, the, the family of all dark mag magicians through the history of humanity. You know, this is a very, this is a family that has given us, you know, Hennebane and, um, you know, uh, Belladonna and, and, and the tree of the evil eagle and the jaguars intoxicant, you know, these are, these are, this is, this is a very, uh, a family of plants that you don't mess with, you know, and, uh, 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 uh and yet we 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 not only you know we not only promote tobacco you know for the longest time we promoted tobacco use and um uh, you know in the case of coca and cocaine you know one of the thing one of the things we can learn about the use of these substances is when we look at indigenous societies that have used these substances for generations without any kind of threat to their cultures. You know, what is it that they use? What do they know that we don't know? Well, first of all, they recognize that the desire to satisfy that urge is a natural thing. Uh, so they insulate that urge with a protective cloak of ritual, generally. Um, and they use their substances in natural forms, which are pharmacologically always the safest. I mean, tobacco only became really dangerous with the development of mild strains of uh, tobacco and the cigarette, which allows for the inhalation deep into the lungs. There's a famous anecdote from Washington University, the medical school there at the turn of the 20th century, 1910 or something, where there was a, patho a form of pathology that the surgeons um, were thought was so rare that they shut down the whole school and brought everybody to the amphitheater to allow these students to witness a form of cancer that they promised them they would never see again in their careers, and that was lung cancer. That's how rare lung cancer was until the cigarette. Um, uh, the first morphine addict, incidentally, was the wife of the uh, man who invented the hypodermic syringe. And so the minute you extract the drug from uh, a natural source, you obviously increase both its potency, but its potential for harm. I mean, remember that we only first, the first drug ever extracted from a natural product was morphine in about 1840. The second was cocaine. Cocaine then, thanks to Freud, was promoted as the, as the treatment of morphine addiction uh, when it turned out the treatment was worse than the cure. But in the late 19th century, you could get cocaine in hundreds of legal pharmaceutical products. And of course, Coca-Cola was born out of this craze and Coca-Cola was created by a entrepreneurial Corsican by the name of Mariani, who took red Bordeaux wine uh, and put pure extracts of cocaine hydrochloride into it and also the essence of the coca leaf. And he made a beverage called Vem Mariani and that needless to say, it was both very zippy and very popular. In fact, Mariani was the only man in history who can claim to have turned on uh, several European monarchs plus the Pope uh, to cocaine. And uh, eventually Coca-Cola was sold the formula to a, a chemist in Atlanta who realized, uh, sold it to another chemist. And then it was realized that with the Pure Food and Drug Act coming on, uh, they better get rid of the cocaine. So they took the cocaine out 
uh, and substituted caffeine through the colon out of Africa. And because of the temperance movement coming on, they took out the red Bordeaux wine and substituted bubbly water based on the whole health movement that Kellogg was all part of, mineral springs, mineral water, coca leaf extract for the flavonoids, and caffeine from the cola nut of Africa. And before you knew it, you had Coca-Cola, which until certainly the 19, um, late 70s, if not 80s, was the only legal importer of coca leaves in the country besides our museum at Harvard. And they would extract the cocaine, sell the cocaine on the pharmaceutical market at $25 an ounce. And, and, and cocaine hydrochloride remains our best topical anesthetic for nose, throat, and ear surgery. So this again illustrates the adage, there's no such thing as good and bad drugs, there's good and bad ways of using drugs. You know, a good way to use a drug is to not use it. Um, a good way to use cocaine is an, as a topical anesthetic. Um, a bad way to use it is to snort it recreationally. Um, and what's interesting about the saga of coca and cocaine is the obvious fact that coca is to cocaine what potatoes are to vodka. But more importantly, when the uh, efforts to begin to, to eliminate the coca fields in Peru, a plant that we know has been used by every pre-Columbian civilization of the Andes and every contemporary society of the Andes and Northwest Amazon uh, today, but also going back 4,000 years, when the first efforts began, um, they began 50 years before there was a cocaine problem. And, and what happened is in Lima, there are a group of physicians whose understanding and sympathy for, you know, uh, uh, for Andean life was matched in its intensity only by their ignorance of that life. And when they looked up into the Andes and they saw poor sanitation, poor nutrition, illiteracy, and they had to come up with a culprit because issues of land distribution, uh, economic inequities, injustice, and so on, came too close to challenging the bourgeois foundations of their own lives in Lima, they had to settle on a culprit and they picked coca. So these incredible accounts of sort of the UN anti-coca mission arriving supposedly to investigate the problem in Peru, uh, you know, led by, you know, individuals who are at the helm of major drug companies, um, who would announce at the airport upon arrival, the outcome of their study, which was to eradicate all the fields. And the incredible thing, um, Aaron, through all that is that nobody did the obvious, a simple nutritional assay to show what this plant had in it that was used today by millions of South American people. And of course, when Tim Plowman and Andy Weil and Jim Duke did that as part of the investigative team that I was sort of a, a you know a young field assistant on, um, you know that was a great my big break in botany was studying coca for two years in South America with Tim Plowman, and uh, but when they did that study, they found out yes, the plant had a little bit of alkaloid, half to one percent dry weight, absorbed benignly through the mucous membrane of the mouth. A, you know, kind of a gentle stimulant in a harsh environment, but it also was full of calcium more than had ever been studied by science in a plant, found in the plant, which made it perfect for a diet that traditionally lacked dairy product. The plant also was chock full of vitamins. So the amount of the daily dose of vitamins suggested by modern medicine was met by the use of the plant. And then third, it Third, it had enzymes which enhanced the body's ability to digest carbohydrate at high elevation, again, perfect for the tuber-based diet of the Andes. So in one simple assay done in 1975, 
that could have been done at any point going back to the 1920s. Um, Tim and Andy and, and Jim Duke put into stark profile these draconian efforts to eradicate the traditional fields and showed that this was a plant that had been used with no evidence of toxicity, let alone addiction, for 4,000 years. Yet to this day, the U.S. government, uh, which has this bizarre policy where they spend $50 billion a year in the war on drugs, even as their citizens inhale every year 165 tons of illicit cocaine, which infuses the illicit trade with $40 billion of profit, uh, continues to advocate for the eradication of the fields in Colombia. But the fumigation does only one thing. It destroys biodiversity and it threatens the lives of children. And why should Colombians, most of whom have never used, let alone seen cocaine, um, be forced to have their greatest natural, natural asset, the landscape itself, and their children compromised uh, by the poisoning of those habitats by a foreign company, a country that, uh, that, that can't get on top of its own cultural failings. And, and again, what Colombians recognize, even as they acknowledge their own culpability in the trade, they also recognize that it's always been consumption that has been the fuel of that trade. And in fact, they have suffered a 50 year uh, uh, war that would not have lasted a day had it not been for the illicit proceeds of the drug uh, cartels. Uh, you know, at the height of the trade, Colombia was putting 80 tons a month into the United States, generating $17 million a day. The accountants of the Medellin cartel were, were uh, uh, budgeting a thousand US dollars a week just to buy elastic bands, just to wrap the money in. And again, Colombians never have never pretended that they weren't responsible in some good measure, but the trade would not have happened without consumption. And, and, and it's consumption that fueled the war. In the last year before the signing of the peace agreement, and all of this is uh, explored in my new book, Magdalena, River of Dreams. Uh, in the last year before the peace agreement, the FARC, who were down to maybe 8,000 cadre, uh, mostly teenagers in search of a good meal, um, nevertheless managed to make $600 million from extortion and drug trafficking. Well, if you give me the Rosedale or the Beverly Hills or the, or the I don't know, the, you know, the lower Upper East Side Boy Scouts and $600 million, I can wreak havoc in New York State or in Ontario or in California with that kind of money. And so Columbia, as a result of the American obsession and the global obsession with cocaine consumption now, uh, 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 has seen 220,000 dead, um, 100,000 missing, 7 million internally displaced, and 5 million forced to flee the country. How would America feel if Canada, for example, had patterns of drug consumption in bars and boardrooms across the country, laws that facilitated the black market trade, but enforcement of those laws so lax that it did nothing to curtail that trade, such that 85 million Americans would be forced from their homes. Well, that's what's happened to Colombia. And you will never stop the growing of coca. The plant is a member of the genus Erythroxylin. It thrives in the most uh, disturbed habitats. You can grow it readily. Um, it, it produces three harvests a year. I've had campesinos tell me that it is a thousand times more lucrative than any other known cultigen. The only solution, aside from the cleansing stroke of legalization, which would actually not only destroy the 
black market trade, you would absolutely see drug use collapse because a lot of what keeps the drug use up is the sheer energy of the trade, the money being made, the cocaine being delivered. And you'd see use plummet because it's in fact a really lousy drug. Uh, but coca, by contrast, is a divine leaf of immortality. It's the most perfect mild stimulant. It is infinitely more useful as a mild stimulant than coffee, tea, or chocolate, and far less um, irritating to the human stomach. Um, you know, what we need to do, uh, in addition, ultimately, to legalizing all drugs, obviously, recognizing full well that um, the, the decisions being made by people about whether or not to use drugs or not have never had anything to do with their legal status. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the war on drugs, incidentally, Aaron, has meant, sadly, that the United States has more citizens with criminal records than citizens with college degrees. And, uh, uh, but, the, but, but with coca itself as a nutraceutical could be the market of the world. It could dwarf the revenues of, of coffee for countries like Colombia, and it could actually provide the world with an extraordinarily useful, extraordinarily benign and, and uh, gentle um, a stimulant that would, that would um, do what is always done since the, since the dawn of civilization, uh, uh, given its grace to human beings. I mean, the Inca spoke about it in such reverence, right? And, um, and, and we could revere the plant once again, if we only opened our eyes to its potential. Wade, you're making me want to chew on some coca. Well, who doesn't? I mean, <laughs> yeah. well, you know, I mean, but in all seriousness, you realize that after everything I've just said about coca, if I brought a, a small bag of coca leaves into Canada or into the United States, it would be treated as if I had brought in a small bag of heroin or a small bag of um, of uh, of um, uh, uh, of pure cocaine. Now, let me let me just tell you one anecdote to tell you how crazy this war on drugs is. We had the Dream Academic Grant of the 1970s, a quarter million dollars, a lot of money back then to study the divine leaf of immortality because there was so little known about its ethnobotany, its taxonomy, uh, its, its um, uh, distribution geographically. And after this incredible um, uh, series of uh, explorations, uh, there was a job posted at the USDA in Beltsville, Maryland. And Tim, my my big brother who, who had the grant and I worked as his assistant, uh, said to me, Willie, he used to call me Willie. He said, Willie, there's a job I want you to apply for, but if you take the job, I'll kill you. And that was interesting. So I went to apply for the job. I walked into this office. I knew immediately, first of all, I was talking to a drug addict because I couldn't get into the office for the cigarette smoke. Secondly, I recognized him immediately as DEA, not USDA. And third, I noticed that it was weird because he, it was like the whole walls were covered with seized drug paraphernalia. And then I'm looking at this guy, he's 1970s, big butterfly collar, hairy chest, chains around his neck, gold blocks on his wrists and that. And I'm thinking, whoa, where have I met this guy before? And then he describes a job and what he wants me to do. And the only thing that they've figured out is that Tim and I are good at finding coca fields. So he wants me to go back to South America, Peru, Bolivia, Colombia, go into the fields, uh, collect the predators, both fungal and, and, um, uh, uh, and insect predators that, um, that damage coca plants so they could bring them back, manipulate them genetically and reintroduce them into the fields. That's what he wanted me to do. So I was 
not only am I not going to do this, I'm now thinking, who the hell is this guy? He's kind of evil incarnate. And I'm and then I said, well, isn't this a little hazardous? And he pulls out of his chest dog tags in gold, which had the names of the agents. You can't make this up. It's like in a movie that had been killed. And, and then I suddenly had this great realization. I thought I had seen him before, but I hadn't really seen him, but I had met him a thousand times in the back alleys of Medellin. When I lived, uh, when the cartel was emerging, he was the cartel, not literally, but energetically. And I never saw in a more theatrical way the obvious fact that the cartel and the anti-drug warriors are two sides of the same coin. Neither one wants the war on drugs to be won. You know, the Washington Post did an expose showing just where that $60 billion a year goes in the federal budget. And every single part of the U.S. government has a finger in that pie. None of the uh, institutions of the U.S. government ever want the war on drugs to be over, let alone won or lost or stopped, because it's so much money, $60 billion. And by the same token, do you think for one second that the uh, the, the cartels that have emerged in the wake of the collapse of the Medellin and Cali cartels of the 70s and 80s. Do you think any of these drug dealers want cocaine to be legalized? No, their whole enterprises will be destroyed. They're criminal networks. And Lord, Lord, I mean, you know, peace would come to Salvador, Nicaragua, and Guatemala, and who would want that? No, the war on drugs will rank as the greatest and cruelest act of, of, um, of uh, of American foreign policy, it has left the country with the shameful record of of having the highest percentage of its own citizens incarcerated, with an extraordinary um, uh, uh, concentration on an African American people, which exasperates the already uh, extraordinary tensions between the races uh, 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 in in America. As I said, it, it it's left a country with more. Um, individuals having criminal records and college degrees, and it has only served the well-being of the cartels themselves. You and I have spent quite a bit of time, you know, in your office talking about reading, talking about books. One of the things that we were chatting about about a year ago was this idea that you are starting, people are reading less today. They're consuming shorter form books their attention has become shorter. There are an increasing amount of Amazon reviews on longer form books that are saying write shorter books, which are then influencing the way that publishers actually operate and what I I believe they're probably demanding from writers like yourself. So I've got a two-part question. The first is, today, why? what, what is motivating you and inspiring you to continue to write these beautiful, longer form, just incredible books? And then the second question is, why did why Magdalena? Why now? What what is it about it that made you just need to get it out? Well, you know, the, the, you know, one of the things that I think you, you you can make a real mistake in life if you if you try to follow local trends. I mean, it's so ephemeral, right? Um, and I, I know I know what you see on those Amazon reviews, like you know, it's awfully long. I mean, uh, I find that just so uh, kind of kind of, you know, well, you know, it's a democratization of opinion, you know, it's, it's um, the same thing you'll see in, you know, the Amazon reviews where a book, any book from any author will have, you know, 95 five-star reviews and someone comes along and gives it a one-star review and said, this book really stinks. 
And, you know, it's always shocking to me, this lack of discretion and decorum that the internet has given us through its anonymity, where, you know, you know, if you were actually in a hall and there were a hundred people and 95 people stood up and said, this is the best book since the Bible, it's highly unlikely that that individual would stand up and, and, and say, I actually think this book sucks because you'd be ridiculed, right? But on the internet, this is what happens. And um, that's just the nature of, of the beast. And I think, you know, it, it, one of the things we're clearly living through is that uh, in the compression of the history of the internet, um, the visionary world that David Bowie spoke about or, or John Perry Barlow with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, where people really thought that the internet was going to liberate knowledge. And to some extent it has. I mean, it's extraordinary as a writer, just speaking as a writer, that if you know, you, know, you want to know what the sunlight is on the side of St. Peter's at 4.30 p.m. on February 12th, because it's important to you as a writer to set the scene, boo, you can find it. But on the other hand, of course, with surveillance capitalism and and the and the algorithms and the way that we you know we've that whole story, we we realize that the that we've all become um, in a way uh, co-opted and 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 almost hostages, you know, whereby our private information is is harvested for the benefit of the of of uh, the interests of the few and so on. So it's suddenly becoming this kind of darker space. Um, but uh, that that said, you know, um, I, I just find that there's a kind of um, there's something really wonderful to be able to just a book, you know, um, and I think I'm, book, I'm with you 100%. I mean, one of the things I mean, I remember, you know, these things come and go, Aaron. I mean, you remember when ebooks came along and there was this great uh, sense that, you know, there are all kinds of good arguments for why an ebook and an ebook reader uh, should replace books. I mean, after all, you can put your entire library on it. You can read it anywhere. All you need is plug in there. But it turns out the ebooks kind of, you know, never realized their promise, and they kind of peaked out at about five percent of the market, and that's about it. And it's because there's just you can't compare reading something on a on a on a screen to holding something. There's something tactile and personal and sensual about even the feel of fingers on paper with a book that I, I think is is something that will not be be be. Um, replaced they they even say that if you if you're to read the same book on an e-reader and on a, and the physical book the the muscle memory from the page turn and that experience gives you a better depth and understanding and flow of the of the content than if you're to right. read an e-reader. And, you know and, and and you know part of this you know the other thing is like you know you, you've known me as a lecturer and i always lecture in a narrative format i never i'm never pedantic i'm never giving you a list of the five forms of kinship you must memorize and a lot of that is, you know, it's interesting. Students come along and they get kind of nervous and they say, Professor, how do I take notes? And I, I always say to them, you know, when you go to a movie, you don't have to take notes to tell your friends the next day what the movie was about. You know, when information is delivered in a narrative form, it's retained. And you know this more than I do with your work. It's retained at levels of, of depth that, that um, uh, orders of magnitude are greater than, than boring, pedantic, rote learning. Um, and, uh, and, and, and there's a discipline in writing books. There's a wonder of writing books. I mean, you know, in a ways said anyone who says that writing a book is, is easy is either a bad writer or a liar. You know, it, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's not easy, but the, the, the heart is what makes it great. So tell, tell me about Magdalena. What, what inspired you to? Well, well, again, you know, I, yeah, that's a great, you know, it, the power of books, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, um, for example, I I wanted to write, you know, uh, 
Tim Plowman, who was my great friend on the COCA study and the, the protege of Professor Schultes, uh, died tragically of AIDS. And at the time of his death, he was my closest friend, 10 years old. He was my big brother. And um, uh, Professor Schultes couldn't attend the funeral at the Field Museum in Chicago because he was ill. And he, uh, it fell to me to deliver the eulogy. And Tim was probably the most beloved person in botany. He was just the most wonderful, generous man. Everybody loved him. And he was so handsome that men and women loved him. So, I mean, he was just like, he had broken hearts all over the universe. And, um, and, and Professor Schultes uh, sent a tape where he ended his remarks with those great lines of, of um, Hamlet, good night, sweet prince, flights of angels, sing thee to thy rest. And as I, as I heard those words with my own face wet with tears and everybody weeping in the audience, I said to myself, I'm gonna write a book that will put these two men in proper historical perspective. And that became the book One River, which was on the one hand, a biography of Schulte's extraordinary explorations from his time uh, as a young man studying peyote amongst the Kiowa, uh, discovering the magic mushrooms in Oaxaca, and of course, his dozen years in the Northwest Amazon, but also, in that book was a kind of a narrative flow of the journeys that Tim and I made together. And it became a story of fathers and sons, uh, students and, and teachers kind of flowing um, in, in, in together like two uh, affluence into one. That was the idea of the title. Anyway, the, the interesting thing is that the book um, was translated by a Colombian poet, Nicholas Sisquan. It came out 150 pages longer in Spanish. It really became Nicholas's book. And it was released in 2002 at a low point in Colombia's uh, history when it was almost a failed state. And you would have thought that a you know a massive book, 700 pages of botanical exploration released in a, 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 an edition with just 500 copies wouldn't have had much of an impact. But the, the real strength of the book was the quality of the translation. And it came out at a time when Columbia's reputation uh, was, was very low, where two generations of young Columbians had been raised as pariahs, um, it, where just to hold a Colombian passport might imply that you were strip searched at any border post, and certainly in the United States. And suddenly there was this book that came out uh, that showed levels of depth of understanding of Columbia, but also in 700 pages said nothing negative about the country, but was purely celebratory of all of its wonder. And the book ended up being embraced not just by uh, journalists and uh, naturalists and anthropologists, as one might expect, but by priests and physicians and politicians. And even I was getting out of my uh, shower at the business class lounge in Doha and guitar in the Middle East once when my cell phone rang and it was Marta Ochoa and she was a sister of the Ochoa brothers, one half of the Medellin cartel with Escobar. And her one younger brother was in penitentiary in Georgia. And she was calling me to ask me if I'd go visit him because he was such a fan of the book, right? And, and, and you know, for two generations of young people in particular, one river, El Rio in Spanish became kind of a map of dreams because it was also a count of a time when a young person, me in the 1970s, had been free to travel anywhere in the nation that my feet could take me, sleeping where my hat fell, um, uh, enveloped only by the warmth and protective cloak of the decency of the Colombian people. 
And and so this book took off, and I didn't know this. I wasn't really traveled. When I finally got back to Columbia to make a couple of films, I, I saw a young student reading a frayed copy of an edition that I didn't know about on the beach in Santa Marta. And then I interviewed the defense minister, and he had a perfect copy of that new edition. It turns out the book had sort of taken off by word of mouth and really uh, had been embraced. And to the extent that when the Columbian National Library selected the first 25 of the 200 books, it will select... Uh, to honor the 200th anniversary of the country, uh, One River was the only book selected by a non-Columbian. And of course, eventually I would be made an honorary Columbian, so that's no longer true. But one of the things that came out of that was that uh, a wonderful man, Jose Alberto Velez, who was the head of um, Grupo Argos, one of Colombia's great corporate citizens, together with some journalists from Medellin, um, Hector Rincon and his wife, uh, Anna Cano had put together a project called Savia Botanica, which was to do illustrated books of each of the five major regions in Colombia, the coast, the mountains, the western forests of the Chilco, the great eastern plains of the Llanos, and of course the Colombian Amazon. And, and these books were not to be sold, but to be gifted to every library in the country to send a, a message to a new generation of Colombians uh, that theirs wasn't a nation of drugs and violence, but a world uh, uh, of the greatest biodiversity and geographical and ecological diversity on the planet. I mean, there is no place in Colombia more than a day removed from every known eco, uh, ecological niche to be found on the planet. And per cap for Brazil, it has more biodiversity marginally, but of course, it's a much greater country. There's no greater concentration of diversity, including more species of birds than any other nation. Um, hosts uh, in Colombia. And, and so they asked me to come down to promote the Amazon uh, edition of that Savia Botanica series. And one day over lunch, I sort of said, well, we've done the land, why don't we do the rivers? And in that inimitable Colombian way, they agreed on the spot. And we decided to do the Magdalena, which is sort of the Mississippi of Colombia. You know, it, it's the, it runs the length of the country, south to north. It's a quarter of commerce, but also um, the fountain of poetry and literature, music and prayer. Uh, it's the Cuenca or the basins home to 80% of the Colombian people. It generates 80% of the nation's economy. It is, it is peeled back the, 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 the surface of any family in Colombia and you will find yourself touching the waters of the Rio Magdalena. And so in a way, it becomes, the book becomes less a story of a passage down the river. I mean, I, you know, one of the things I try very hard to do in my writing you know, is not to make myself the focus of anything. You know, it's interesting. In the last generation, um, Aaron, the use of the word I has doubled in American literature. I'm doing my best to keep the word out of. And in fact, I, I, I use that as a lesson for my students. In the entire 400 pages of Magdalena, the word I, outside of the preface, applies, is found only 100 times. You should never have to use the word I when you write literary nonfiction. Uh, it's just a cheap device that gets in the way. Um, but that aside, um, I wasn't interested in journeying the length of the river uh, source to mouth in a kayak. I mean, that would have made a journey all about me. I wasn't even interested in hitching rides on the river per se, you know, I mean, you know, the, 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 my goal was to tell the story of the country through the metaphor of the river. So I went everywhere in the valley over five trips. Um, and it was sort of sociology as serendipity. I would, I would go to a community 
until I met someone who had something to say that the world needed to hear. And that, as Hemingway said, is the essence of great storytelling. And because El Rio had been so warmly received, my return to the country, and we, I was also making a lot of films that were celebrating the nation, was kind of embraced. And, and through this whole kind of decade long process, I, I kind of emerged almost like an avatar in Columbia. It's hard to explain, um, but in part, it's not to my credit as much as the desperate need of Colombians in the wake of this horrible war uh, that, that was not of their making um, to, to have validation. And in a way, what Magdalena tries to do is reinforce the peace process because the greatest enemy of peace is negativity, pessimism, despair. And by holding a mirror to all that is great in the Colombian experience, not shine away from what's gone wrong and the negativity and the agony, but explaining it with empathy. Um, you know, I'm hoping that this will kind of inspire Colombian people as, as a book already um, ha has done. You know, one of the endorsements of the book came from a good friend of mine, Hector Abad, who, who's a wonderful writer and, and one of his greatest books. He's a brilliant and compassionate Colombian intellectual and professor and so on. But he wrote a book called Oblivion in English about the assassination of his father and the killing of his dad, who was a social reformer, much beloved in Medellin, you know, in a, land, in a country that, that had maybe as many as 260,000 killed. Um, there are four or five killings um, that really shook the nation. And Hector's dad was one of those, brought out tens of thousands of people in mourning to the streets of Medellin. And it made Hector understandably bitter about his own country. He fled to exile in Italy and where I met him. And, um, and uh, you know, even now that he lives back in Colombia, he's known as a kind of a public intellectual with a kind of ambivalent feeling about his own nation for all kinds of good reasons. And um, so when Hector writes in the back of Magdalena that only Wade um, could make me love my country again, that's really a, a fantastic homage to the spirit of this book. I mean, uh, um, you know, uh, we were talking about earlier in this podcast uh, mm -hmm. about a young person coming of age. You know, people people often ask me why why Columbia of all. You know, I mean, you've traveled to fifty countries a year for the National Geographic. What is it about this place um, that that uh, you know? And you know, remember that I you know I I uh, you know I went there when I was fourteen. I found. I found it felt to me like home. Um, you know, I mean, I had a lot of fun. I got drunk for the first time, kissed a girl for the first time. I mean, it was, it was like, you know, I mean, I can't tell you how much fun I had. Um, and all the, I, incidentally, Aaron, I later learned that all the other mothers of all the other families that had hosted Canadian lads were on the blower all the time saying to each other, you know, why can't these boys be happy like little Guillermocito, little Willie, you know, because like, you know, he's always happy, you know, I wasn't just happy. I was ecstatic. I was like born in heaven. I mean, I just couldn't believe it, the, the joy of being in Colombia. Uh, and then later at the age of 19, I returned and I, uh, with a one-way ticket, a small backpack of clothes, uh, two books, Lawrence's Taxonomy of Vascular Plants and Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. I, I believe that bliss was an objective state that you could open by, uh, you could achieve just by opening yourself unabashedly to the world. I literally and metaphorically drank from every stream, even tire tracks in the road. And I was always sick with malaria and dysentery, but that was part of the process, exposing your own body to the natural world and, just you know, jumping off every cliff you could find, um, 
uh, once on a 24-hour notice, I agreed to guide a British journalist across 250 miles of swamp that separated Colombia from Panama. We ran into, you know, evil uh, cops and military and thieves and anaconda and jaguar got lost for 10 days in the jungle. We finally emerged. Uh, Sebastian had lost 45 pounds. I had lost 25 pounds. And, uh, you know, and I finally kind of landed in Panama City. In this little plane, I just a ragged clothes in my back, all drenched in vomit because two people had puked on me in the little back seat of the Cessna. I had three dollars to my name, nowhere to go, no contacts in Panama City. I was 20 years old, but I had never felt so alive, you know. And there's then I, I there was a wonderful moment um, when my dear friend uh, Sandra Uribe who became my, you know, my partner, my, my, my dearest friend, uh, the editor, my, in everything I do in Colombia, Sandra is at my side. We're, we're just, I've never had a friend like this. Um, she's a brilliant artist and, and um, she's, you know, she's really responsible for the book really as much as I am in so many ways, as I acknowledge in the back of the book. But I, I was in Bogota uh, and being interviewed by a journalist and, um, I totally forgotten that at the end of, you know, when we wrote, when I wrote the book, Sandra and I were in touch with each other, sometimes multiple times a day. At the end of one grueling uh, day, I had just apparently pounded a little message to her by email uh, to keep our spirits up, you know, I mean, writing books is hard. And, uh, uh, and she had served as my research assistant. So we're going back and forth anyway. And um, uh, I had, I had forgotten about this thing I had written and she hadn't, she had put it on her phone. So when this journalist asked me um, why this affection and this love between a young boy and a country, where did it begin and what was it all about? I, I was, I, before I could answer, Sandra pulled this passage up and read it to the to journalists and I'll read it to you right now. Um, and again, this is something I just whipped off in, in 30 seconds as a note to Sandra and I told, I'm totally forgotten about it. But she said, I said, I do long for the air of Bogota, that unmistakable scent that tells me I've landed on the savannah. It's hard to explain. When I talk about loving Colombia, it's something visceral, even sensual. To be away for too long is to be on life support. To step again onto the soil of the nation is to feel instantly that very sense of belonging that so long ago gave me the freedom to envision the man I've become. Whispered messages of a landscape unlike any other. The wild embrace of a people that allowed a vagabond boy to grow into a content and realized scholar. It is the very madness of Columbia that rescued me like a sweet coefficient of the soul. My fire was so bright, so all-consuming, that I came very close to self-immolation. Only Columbia could match and give purpose to my passion. I was saved by that, and this is a key if anyone wants to understand my loyalty to the country. Say no more. Well. That's one thing that always strikes me with you as well. You you literally just wrote that off, right? That was just a note that you that. Oh, you I mean, that was ten seconds, fifteen seconds. I just banged off an email to her. When whenever we send, whenever we have our email exchanges, 
I read your emails and I get minorly perturbed and a little bit pissed off because I know that you're just whipping those off, but they're each, it's, it's, each one is poetry. It's, it's unbelievable. Well, the, funny thing, one of the, uh, the funny thing about email, it actually gets me in trouble, Aaron, is that, is that because I'm a writer, you know, I, I, I literally physically, and, and, and you know, and th th this is, I don't mean I'm special. You know, it's, it's like the classic thing, what's that line? You do something 100,000 times, you get good at it, right? And that's what I do, I write, you know, and, and I'm totally self-taught. Uh, so, so I have my own style and, you know, it's what I do. I'm writing all day long. If I don't write, it's like I don't breathe. I can't stand a day without writing. Um, and, um, and, uh, but with email, and it also means that I'm constitutionally incapable of not writing a full grammatical sentence, right? But, you know, emails of vernacular that um, uh, full grammatical sentences, as you know, come across as aggression, um, you know, because we're supposed to be using all these, you know, hi, you, that, you know, and at the National Geographic, it was so funny. I would write these emails to my boss or whatever. And because I had a prestigious position there as explorer in residence, I would suddenly realize I had unleashed a tsunami in the building. Wade's mad. Wade's mad. What's wrong with, you know, what does Wade need? You know, and all I had done is written a, an email that was grammatically ac correct. You know, I, I mean, but, but, but I, I had violated the the protocols of actually the email format, right? Because you know, and I mean, if you get an email that says, you know, dear, you know, dear Aaron, you know, you know, as if your just as your father would have written you, or you're not you, you're too young, but your grandpa would have written your dad, you know, that kind of letter. I mean, look look at the formality of. I mean, one of the ones you know that's so I love uh, working with archival documents is to realize the the amazing literacy of the 19th century. You know, I mean, uh, uh, e even though there were, you know, soldiers less than, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, the correspondence certainly amongst the educated officers of World War I is just, just, just so exquisite, you know? And we've, lo we've lost that, obviously, you know? And it's what, it's what, what Truman Capote said about, uh, about Kerouac. He said, there's writing and there's typing. Um, there were th really three main books and three or three main ideas that we, we spoke to and spoke about. So one of them was the Magdalena. The other one was we spoke about one of uh, one of your recent um, submissions to the Rolling Stone, the unraveling of America, although we didn't get as deep into that as I would have liked. And then third piece that we spoke about was why anthropology matters. I'm wondering, are there any specific takeaways from from the um, the unraveling of America that you would like to like to provide folks with. Well, that that I mean, that, that piece was really what made that piece. It was came about rather serendipitously. But um, I I've been asked to write about COVID, and I didn't think I had anything new to say. Um, and I certainly didn't from the perspective of public health. Um, uh, but rather, um, when I look at it from a perspective of culture suddenly I did have something to say. And it seemed to me that the, the response of individual nations to the COVID crisis told us a lot about the nature of their, their, uh, their community, sense of community and their sense of uh, solidarity. And it, it, it struck me that there was, there was a historical lesson 
in the in the abject failure of the American um, system to respond to that crisis, and you know, I, I what, what what more interesting in all of that is the response to that piece. You know, I I wrote it on spec after a kayak trip around Bowen Island one evening, sent it to my friend Jan Wenner, who created Rolling Stone, an old friend of mine, and Jan loved it, and he sent it to a, a brilliant editor at the, at the magazine. Uh, they put it up on the website, but no, I didn't even get paid for the piece. No one had any expectations of anything, but it just hits, hit this nerve coming out in August, just as it did. And over 5 million people viewed it at the site. It generated 362 million social media impressions and visitations to my Wikipedia site soared to over 4,000 a day. So it just, it just hit this nerve. Um, and, and, and even the response told us a lot about the situation. So if anyone, you know, we don't have time to go into it now, Aaron, but certainly you can readily access that piece. It's called The Unraveling of America. Wade, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, your mind just continues to blow my mind. So thank you for that. Thank you for listening to Impact in the 21st Century, and thank you to RBC for sponsoring this episode. We're so grateful for your sponsorship, which helps Simbi Foundation further our mission to support the next 3.5 million learners in refugee settlements. So how do we do this? We collaborate with the UN and incredible partner communities to build solar power classrooms called Bright Boxes. You can learn more at simbifoundation.org. If you enjoyed this episode and think a family member, friend, or coworker would also enjoy it, feel free to share. A personal message goes a long way and will allow us to invite more awesome guests to join for the positive impact conversation. But the conversation doesn't end here, and I'd love for you to join the discussion. So please subscribe, leave a review, comment, and let us know what you thought of today's episode, or if there's anyone else you'd like to see on the podcast. In the meantime, wishing you a wonderful, impactful day ahead. Be sure to join for the next episode.